When you're trying to improve your golf game, Callaway knows you can't hit the ball further by doing the same old thing. It takes unconventional thinking to transform your game, and that's what Callaway did with the new Maverick driver. Maverick drivers were designed using advanced AI. Callaway's supercomputer tested and refined thousands of virtual prototypes until it created Callaway's fastest, most forgiving driver. New distances out there, it takes a Maverick to find it. Explore Maverick drivers at callawaygolf.ca. This episode deals with discussions of sexual violence. The reduced sentence for an Edmonton man convicted of five sexual assaults has once again raised concerns about how Canada's justice system handles cases of sexual violence. Matthew McKnight's crimes warranted 16 years, the judge said, but ultimately it was handed a sentence of half that amount. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. Today, I'm joined by advocate Kristen Rayworth, herself a survivor of sexual violence, to discuss why the sentence is concerning and how the justice system is failing victims. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. We'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So, Kristen, thanks for agreeing to come on the podcast. What is your background in sexual violence advocacy, and what led you to want to become an advocate? Well, thank you for having me on. So, I am a sexual violence survivor. Five years ago, I was sexually assaulted by a close friend of mine. And when I disclosed to friends and some family, I was not believed, I was not supported. I also disclosed to police, which was a very negative experience, which it is for a lot of survivors. And I went through a very difficult time immediately after. And the ironic thing about that was that while I was doing that, I was working for the government of Alberta and I was working very closely with the sexual assault centers across the province and was actually working on a campaign that they launched called the I Believe You campaign, which is about supporting survivors of sexual violence and providing people with the tools to be able to support the people close to them who experience sexual violence. And about a year later, I was blessed to actually be asked to be the spokesperson for the campaign for that year and be the speaker at the launch in 2017. Mm -hmm. And that's really what started my advocacy was that campaign and my opportunity to be able to speak publicly to people about it. And since then, I've been doing work on addressing changes at the the federal and provincial level that need to be made and supporting the sexual assault centers and the work that they do. You recently wrote a column for the National Post called Sexual Violence Survivors Deserve Better. Kind of right off the top in the column, you mentioned Daisy Coleman, who, for people who may recognize the name, was the subject of a Netflix documentary called Audrey and Daisy. It's about her experience as a sexual assault survivor. What is your connection with her? So that documentary came out pretty much within months after my assault. And part of the documentary talks about her experiences after she disclosed and the way that she was treated by her community. Her family actually had to move. Her house actually got burned down. So I watched it and it was incredibly impactful to me and resonated with me. So I actually reached out to her on Twitter and we ended up connecting that way and talking off and on on Twitter and really forming this bond about our mutual experiences, but also just the bond that comes with seeing justice not being done for survivors again and again and again, and whether it was the Brock Turner case 
or whether it was the Robin Camp judge case where he told a survivor to why she didn't keep her knees together. Mm-hmm. We would have these conversations again and again and again about the lack of justice that we were seeing for survivors and the way when you haven't experienced justice for yourself and you see someone else not experience it, it's really angering and it's hard to deal with. And it was a consistent bond that the two of us had about basically when were we ever going to be able to look at a case and see justice done? One of the things you mentioned in your column that that you and Daisy had been discussing was an Edmonton trial. And is a former nightclub promoter. His name is Matthew McKnight. He was recently found guilty of five of 13 counts of sexual assault and was recently sentenced. What was your take on the case, both the investigation and the trial, both of which were extremely lengthy? It began with 21 women who came forward. And it did end up resulting in five convictions. So a lot of those women who came forward didn't see justice initially. I think that the Matthew McKnight case is a perfect example of the way that we allow predators like him to exist in our societies because we don't want to believe that someone we like or someone that we are friends with is capable of sexual assault. Over 80% of all sexual assaults are acquaintance sexual assaults. Mm -hmm. And that is what makes this issue so complex and so difficult for people because I think so many of us grew up with the stranger danger messaging that people who commit sexual violence are like those creepy people behind a bush who jump out and attack you, not your buddy at the bar. And even when you read some of the statements made by the owner of Knoxville's, the owner of another club, people who were friends with McKnight, they talk about him like he's this great guy, even after his convictions. And that leads to an environment where it becomes incredibly difficult for women to come forward. And these 21 women are heroes. They did what they had to do for themselves eventually by coming forward and speaking up and for them to have then seen his sentence minimized to eight years, which means he will likely only serve three. Mm-hmm. A lot of the rationale in the judge's final decision was really based on rape myths. It was based on the idea that what these women went through wasn't as traumatic as this guy being assaulted in jail briefly or other things that happened to him. It was very much focused on him and not on the damage that he did to these women. It was ultimately an example of why we need judicial training, why we need these judges to understand the long-term impacts of sexual violence. For the judge to have said that these were isolated incidents when he was convicted of five serial rapes. Yeah in and of itself is ridiculous. That would be like saying, okay, well, we shouldn't charge Paul Bernardo as a serial killer because he killed all these women separately. Yeah. Like just saying that out loud sounds ridiculous, but that was her logic in the way that she chose to sentence Matthew McKnight. On the sentencing aspect of it, I assume that you were following the trial pretty closely. The Crown was initially seeking 22 years, which seems like when you're talking about sentencing, like a fairly stiff sentence. And even the judge at sentencing suggested that it warranted 16 years. Were you hopeful after the conviction on on five counts and hearing some of the sentencing arguments that seemed to offer a pretty stiff penalty that we may actually see a sentence like that? Or were you unsurprised when the judge came back and said McKnight's crimes only warranted eight years? I mean, when the crown was going for 22, you always know that they're going to ask for the absolute maximum and hope that it's going to come out somewhere in the middle because the defense was asking for three to five. 
I never thought that he was going to get 22 years. Mm -hmm. I was watching the results come in through Twitter, like the live streams from some of the journalists who were there. And you could almost feel it start to shift when she was talking about the principle of totality, which means whether or not the crimes merit this level of sentencing. So as soon as she started talking about that, you knew that it was going to go down. And my heart just broke seeing it go down and go down and go down and a year off because he was assaulted in jail, another two years because of his prospects for rehabilitation, which in and of itself makes no sense because he has not apologized or acknowledged what he did. Mm -hmm. So how you can say that someone can be rehabilitated when they cannot even admit to what they have done, to me, makes no sense. It just felt like, okay, this is happening again. Just like case after case after case. There was a case in the East Coast of a cab driver who sexually assaulted a woman in the back of his cab. She was so drunk, she was completely passed out. And he barely served any time. You see this again and again and again. And so it becomes just this sickening feeling of it happening all over again. Yeah. Now, one of the things you mentioned earlier in the Matthew McKnight sentencing that the judge took into account was his rehabilitative prospects. And that's, depending on who you ask, that's one of the features or the bugs of the Canadian justice system, that the courts take into account whether someone can be rehabilitated in prison and come out of jail, I guess, ready to reintegrate. Why is it problematic in cases like Matthew McKnight's? Is it just the fact that in this case, he hasn't acknowledged or apologized for what he did? Or are there broader problems with taking these things into account in sexual assault cases? This is always a problematic question for me, because I do strongly believe in the ability to be rehabilitated. I don't believe that our prison system does a good enough job in terms of providing the supports to inmates so that they can be rehabilitated. That's I do believe that's an important focus and people can change and people can adjust their behaviors. However, in this case, this is a serial rapist. This is not somebody who made one mistake and should be seen that way. This is someone who targeted He's a predator. He targeted women for years. Mm-hmm. And the fact that A, he, like I said earlier, he did not apologize. He did not acknowledge what he has done. One of his defenses was, well, I've had sex with 300 women and I haven't had sex in four years. So look at me. I'm great. Like yeah. that was taken into consideration in his sentencing. What we need to be focusing on in a case like this is if he doesn't get a sentence that is comparable to the enormity of what he did, he's not going to walk out of that jail cell in three years and think, I did something awful and I need to amend what I have done and I need to change. He's going to think it's not a big deal Mm -hmm. because the justice system has not sentenced me in a way that makes me feel like what I did was a big deal. And also the women's voices were not prioritized here. The judge even said that she didn't take the victim impact statements into consideration because she said they were repetitive from what had been said on the stand. Wow. So how is he going to feel any need to be rehabilitated when even the judge said that his victim's voices were not as important as his? After the sentencing came up, this is what sparked one of your conversations with Daisy Coleman. Daisy died by suicide. Is this what galvanized you a little more to take the step to put your thoughts down and refocus the argument on the need for support for survivors? Yeah. 
what happened to Daisy and what unfortunately happens with a lot of survivors is that it becomes incredibly painful when not only are you having to deal with the trauma of the assault, but then on top of that, you are dealing with the rejection of your community and your friends and your support network. And to deal with a trauma like that alone, it can be incredibly difficult. Mm -hmm. Not being believed is the most difficult thing. And studies show that survivors who are not believed when they disclose, whether it is by family or friends or the justice system, are less likely to have a positive healing journey. I've been advocating around this judicial training for a very long time to see a judge reinforce these stereotypes around sexual assault and rape myths is incredibly frustrating. And after Daisy died, it just felt like I wanted to say something about it again. And I also wanted to honor her and honor the conversations that we've had because justice for one of us feels like justice for all of us. Mm. And until we actually start seeing that as the norm and not the exception, it won't feel like there's justice around this issue at all. For many, there was some hope that the court's and the justice system may see change that would help deal with some of these problems. Former interim conservative party leader Rona Ambrose brought forward a private member's bill in the House of Commons regarding mandatory training for judges to help them understand better sexual assault and what happens with survivors. What was in that bill that was important and what ultimately happened with that bill? That bill came about as a result of the case I mentioned earlier. It was in a direct response to the Robin Camp case in Calgary with a judge who told the survivor to ask her why she couldn't keep her knees together. Mm -hmm. It was built in collaboration with sexual assault centers, specifically in Alberta with the Alberta Association of Sexual Assault Services. They helped draft that bill with Rona Ambrose. The bill in and of itself would mandate that judges need to receive sexual violence training before becoming judges. Right now, basically as a judge, your specialty could be real estate or family law, and then you will end up serving on a sexual assault case with absolutely no background in that case whatsoever. Yeah. So that would shift that. It would also ensure that there is consistent monitoring of the training that they are getting as ongoing professionals. And the biggest part of this is that all judges now would have to issue written statements as to why they sentenced someone the way that they did, which is not necessarily the case now. Mm -hmm. So it would really provide accountability to judges for the decisions that they make in these cases. But more than anything, it would allow them to understand the trauma that sexual assault survivors experience, why sometimes they don't have the responses that you would necessarily assume and a lot of the biggest argument against this has always been that it would bias the judges for the survivor, for the victim, that it is not balancing out the rights of the defendant versus the people who are making the accusations. And that's not accurate. What it is, is to simply help clarify for people that not every person who experiences sexual violence is going to respond the same way. Yeah, Trauma has an impact on the memory and the way that you remember and experience the way that you disclose all these different things. And what we've seen from things like the case that Robin Doolittle covered in the Globe and Mail around why police officers weren't charging people in these cases was oftentimes it was based on rape myths. And it was based on whether or not they felt a survivor met their criteria, how someone should act, how someone should be, whether or not they were quote unquote, a perfect enough victim. 
this bill was meant to address those misconceptions. Her bill was passed unanimously in the House, but died on the order paper at the Senate. But that wasn't the end of it. I mean, at least thankfully, as far as this issue goes, the Liberals brought in their own legislation earlier this year, but so far it hasn't been passed, correct? Yeah. So it was brought in actually three years almost to the day. Rana brought in her bill in February of 2017. It passed and then just sat in the Senate for years and died right before the election. And then in February of 2020, the Liberals brought it back. And so it has passed second reading. But unfortunately, due to COVID and the focus on that, there has been no push by anyone to actually get it passed anywhere else. And no other bills that are unconnected to COVID have really moved at all. Is this something that's only in the realm of the federal government? Can provincial legislatures do anything to improve interactions sexual violence survivors have with the justice system? Yes. So PEI actually almost, I think it was now a year and a half ago, passed a provincial version of Rana's bill. They are the only province to date that have done so because provincial judges, so any judge who is presiding over a case that is two years less a day, mm-hmm. they are chosen by provincial committee. So in PEI now, those judges need to take sexual violence training before they will be recommended as judges. So that is absolutely something that Alberta can do and should do. As well, we look at the issues around mandate and training for the RCMP federally and for provincial police as well. It's piecemeal now in terms of what kind of training they have to take. Most times it's just kind of an hour-long online training. There is the opportunity now with the opening up of the Police Act in Alberta to mandate training across the province that is actually much more substantive. I think anyone who's ever taken an online course knows that those are not always the most enlightening Mm -hmm. and the need to make that more substantive for police so that police and RCMP and judges and anyone who's going to touch a survivor's story throughout the course of their disclosure should be trained in how to work with survivors. When do we get the sense that Alberta may wrap up or make changes to the Police Act now that they've looked at reopening it and amending it? They have opened up consultations. They began, I believe, two or three weeks ago to start consultations with community. There hasn't been an end date in terms of when they will actually be bringing forward anything. But right now, they're returning to the legislature August 27th. So there is an opportunity for folks who do want this to happen to contact the justice minister and to ask that this be something that he considers in the remodel of the police act advocates and agencies have been asking for that as well. So there is a hope that in the fall session that that could be something that they bring forward. Well, hopefully as this moves forward, they start to take seriously the voices of survivors and advocates like you and make those changes. Kristen, thanks for your time. Thank you for having me. 103 is produced by Carson Jarama, theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Kristen Rayworth. You can read her full column at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.